have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we've been walking through the Beatitudes and enjoying them. And, and as we've seen so far in the Beatitudes, the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus immediately paints the life of the true disciple and the follower of Christ in very ironic terms, very paradoxical terms. That to be a Christian is to be completely the opposite of what mankind left through their own devices would invent. It's one of the reasons we're Christians, because no man in his right mind would invent Christianity. This is the opposite of what mankind would invent. That blessing comes to the poor in spirit. The one who has no spiritual offerings that he thinks he may give to the Lord. He comes only with brokenness and emptiness and, and sinfulness. That blessing comes to those who mourn, who are grieved, who are torn apart by their own sin. And those who mourn the effects of sin in this world and long to leave this world. And that blessing comes to those who are lowly, who have a a low estimation of self and who receive a low estimation that the unsaved world assigns them and and is fine with that. But we've seen that each of these qualities of the true believer, each of these attitudes of the heart, which are so contrary to what the world teaches you about yourself, they all lead to joy. That's the paradox of the Christian life. The the blessedness found in being poor in spirit. The blessedness found in being those who mourn. The blessedness found in those who are lowly. Those who are humble. And in the same vein, now we come to the fact that blessing comes to those who hunger and thirst for something. And what is that? Matthew 5 verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness receive a promise of satisfaction or of filling, of of being satiated. And like the first three Beatitudes, they're somewhat like the tip of an iceberg. You see a little bit on the surface, but beneath it is massive and, and filled with help. And so how does hungering and thirsting for righteousness create joy in the Christian life? How does that work? Well, I want to jump right into this because we have a lot to cover. It's a a deep and and complex beatitude, really. I want to give you four ways that joy comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Four ways joy comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The first one we'll spend almost all of our time on, then the rest will make more sense. The first way... Joy comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Joy comes in honest evaluation. Joy comes in honest evaluation. Now, you're going to want to take that idea, place it off to the side, because we're going to get back to it in about 20 or 30 minutes. Joy comes in honest evaluation. Before we can comment on that joyful effect, we need to dig into this verse and, and really understand the first half of the verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I want to do this in three ways. First, we need to define righteousness. What is it specifically that we are hungering for, that we're thirsting for? Second, we need to accurately explain when the audience that originally heard the Sermon on the Mount heard hungering and thirsting, we need to explain what they heard because it's different than what we might read. And then third, we need to define what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that actually mean? 
then we can go to the joy that's found in honest evaluation. But we have to lay this three-part foundation first for a bit. So first of all, let's see if we can wrap our minds around what Jesus means by righteousness. And, and there are lots of options. I've boiled it down to two of the most reasonable. Two major reasonable options are both good, they're both biblical, but righteousness can't be both simultaneously in this particular passage. Option number one Righteousness refers to justification. It refers to justification. That is the imputed, the credited righteousness of God. Justification, that the sinner is declared innocent before God by virtue of the work of Christ on the cross. This is a major way that the term righteousness is used in the New Testament. Paul uses the term righteousness in this way in the glorious salvation text of Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Paul uses righteousness in this way in the classic verse on the doctrine of justification, on the exchange of our sin for Christ's goodness, Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection. That classic verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In those contexts, Paul is speaking of our right standing before God, that we're justified in the courts of heaven. We're innocent in the courts of heaven because of the payment for sin made by Christ in satisfaction of the holy wrath of God against unrighteousness. This righteousness has something of a, a, a possession to it. It's something you have. It's something you own. It's something that is, is yours. It is your official standing before God. And this is really the, the center of the gospel. This is the core of the gospel. This is the middle of the gospel. That justification is a one-time instantaneous act in which God has credited you as the sinner with Christ's perfect life, and he's credited you as the sinner with Christ's perfect, atoning, sufficient death. It's a glorious doctrine. It's the center of the gospel. But, strictly speaking, an unbeliever, someone who's unregenerate, someone who's not saved, can't hunger and thirst for righteousness if we're talking about justification. Unless they're in the process of being saved, in the throes of the agony of admitting spiritual defeat and waving the white flag and casting all their hope in the mercy of God. So no, all all the Beatitudes here describe the qualities of a kingdom citizen. Someone who has already been justified. Someone who is already in the kingdom. Someone already regenerated. Someone already with a new heart, with a new mind. Someone who's already repented. Someone who's already surrendered to Christ's call to be his slave and to be his child. And so the other option then is that righteousness refers to sanctification. To sanctification. That part of sanctification, the the setting apart, the making holy of my life, the progressive part of sanctification, that's the core definition of a growing Christian. Somebody asked, What does it mean to grow as a Christian? It means you're participating in progressive sanctification. And so righteousness here in Matthew 5 refers to the actual lived out personal righteousness 
as a result of being in right standing before God. So your progressive sanctification is the result of justification. But this here, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, is speaking specifically of sanctification. Matthew uses righteousness in this sanctified way elsewhere. Matthew 1.19 describes Mary's betrothed Joseph as, quote, a righteous man. Why? Because he didn't want to disgrace Mary publicly when he learned that she was pregnant. He did righteous things. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Meaning, seek to do the things that are right, that are good. Matthew 13, 17, Jesus said, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. In Matthew 25, 37, Jesus describes the judgment of the survivors of the great tribulation that is yet to be. He says, quote, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? He defines the righteous as those who did good and righteous and holy things. Probably the most direct example in Matthew, though, is, is right in the next chapter, Matthew 6, 1. Jesus describes righteousness not as something a person has, but as something that a person does, something he practices. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So in this context, Jesus is speaking of sanctification, of hungering and thirsting for godliness, to live your faith, to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, to walk in the manner worthy of the calling. But we also need to accurately explain what Jesus' audience heard and what they understood when they heard hunger and thirst. What did they hear? That's the beauty of metaphors, of word pictures in the Bible. They explain themselves very easily. Everyone understands that to hunger and thirst for something is a metaphor for intense longing, for desire. Very few of us, if any of us, have ever experienced hunger or thirst in the sense of not having a meal or drink available to you. But in Jesus' day, very few Jews had not experienced a lack, not experienced hunger, not experienced thirst. This was a normal part of life. And not only was it a normal part of life, The Jews had an intense history which was burned into their cultural memory. You ask anyone about this and they knew about this. Even though it was centuries earlier, it's such a a horrific memory. 2 Kings 6, 25 records a famine so bad in the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. That's about $6,000 for food. Two quarts of, and this is in the Bible, two quarts of dove's dung was sold for five shekels. But worst of all, desperate people were eating their own children. They were eating their babies. Jeremiah 19.9 records Jeremiah's prediction that when Babylon comes and lays siege to Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will eat the flesh of their children and of one another. I mean, how does that work? Well, there goes dad, but at least we won't be hungry for the next week. This is horrific. It's terrible. So when we in rainy Bakersfield read (laughs) hunger and thirst, what do we read? We read a mild yearning for a meal four hours after I just had one. That's what we read. But when the Jew heard hunger and thirst, 
He was awash in the stories of, of starvation, awash in the stories of, of being lost in the wilderness and crying out to God for help. He was intimately familiar with his own situation. And remember, the economy in the ancient Near East in Jesus' day where he was teaching was primarily built on the backs of day laborers. That a laborer would go and stand in the city courtyard in the, in the town square and he would wait for a landowner to come and hire him. And if he didn't get hired, he didn't have bread for the day. And his whole family waited all day long so that the man of the house could buy bread and buy a little meat to bring home for the day. It was not unusual in poorer families to not eat until the evening. They understood this. The Psalms gives us the proper perspective on what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Psalm 42.1 As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. This is a, a thirsting for God like a deer desperate for drink is panting before finding the stream of refreshing water. This is a longing to live a, a godly life as much as a starving man yearns for the next morsel of food. Or like a, a, a man who has had nothing to drink for days, stretching out his hand eagerly for just a few drops of water. Now with that understanding of both righteousness and what it really means to hunger and thirst, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I want to give this to you from both a negative perspective and a positive perspective. First of all, hungering and thirsting for righteousness from a negative standpoint, negative perspective. I'm going to give you four. Four ways hungering and thirsting for righteousness, how we might define them. The first one is, is obvious. This is a baseline. But it is a desire to be rid of sinful habits. To be rid of sinful habits. To ultimately work at responding to any situation with godliness, with righteousness. This means comparing my life with the Word of God. That that's a continual comparison. As James 1 says, to use the Word of God as a mirror that is totally honest with me. The professing Christian who says, I have these sinful habits, but I'm not going to worry about them. They're not hungry and thirsting for righteousness. There's a second way we could define this. To be rid of anything which hinders worship. To be rid of any, anything which hinders worship of God. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul pointed out to the Corinthians that in some manner, many were coming to worship, many were coming to the Lord's table in some sort of state of selfish sinfulness, likely against one another. But something was keeping some of the Corinthians from worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and God was disciplining some of them even all the way to death. Jesus, in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, just a couple of paragraphs after our text here, he gives the principle that you cannot worship God properly when you're aware of a relationship issue which you can do something about. You can't worship God properly to be rid of anything which hinders worship. Here's a third way we could come from a, a negative standpoint. To be rid of sinful manifestations of selfishness. To be rid of sinful manifestations of selfishness. Every sinful decision that you make is based on looking out for an idolatrous view of self that I'm the most important person in the room or in the world. That is exactly the opposite of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I think often manifestations of selfishness 
Sometimes we, we tend to minimize them. We tend to think of them in less than sinful terms. For example, someone might say, well, I'm shy. There's no category for shyness in Scripture. That's a selfish manifestation of saying, I'm more important than loving others. Someone might say, well, I, I'm really a loner. I'm, I'm a loner. Proverbs 18.1 says that the one who isolates himself seeks his own desire. It's selfishness. Someone might say, and I heard this this week, I need some space from that person who has treated me badly. I need space. But Romans 12.20 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Someone might say, well, I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be angry. You're a slave of Christ. You have no rights. Slaves have no rights. The only thing you have a right to be angry about is anything that your master is angry about. That's it. Those are just examples. But when you find yourself in the mode of looking out for self, honest evaluation will at times reveal a sinful motive if you'll be honest with yourself and ask yourself the very simple question, am I hungry and thirsting for righteousness or am I hungry and thirsting to get my way to look out for number one? Here's a fourth way we could come from a a negative standpoint. To be rid of the lie of helplessness against sin. To be rid of the lie of helplessness against sin. A favorite preacher of mine from the past, and I won't tell you who he is because I love him and I want you to keep reading him, but he says that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is partly defined, listen carefully, as being freed from the power of sin. And he says this, quote, He wants to get away from this power that drags him down in spite of himself. And as is very predictable, he cites Romans chapter 7, such as the classic verse 19, For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And so the, the lesson here from this preacher and from many others is that there are just certain things that you can't help, and that's just the way it is. But taking the context, it becomes very clear that in Romans 7, Paul's describing himself under the law before he was saved. There's no other place that Paul describes himself as helpless under the power of sin. Uh, for example, in Philippians 3.17, Paul said they should follow his example. I hardly think Paul would say, follow my example of practicing the very evil I do not want to do. Romans 7 is sandwiched between Romans 6 and Romans 8. Romans 6 says you're dead to sin and alive to God. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And Romans 8 is soaked in the Spirit of God, in the life of the believer. And Paul asserts that we're not under obligation to the flesh. We're not under obligation to live according to the flesh. And the fact is, the power is there. The resources are there. You may, for example, demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do you manifest that? Books have been written. Entire master's theses have been written on this. How do you manifest the, the, the fruit of the Spirit? You just decide to because the Spirit of God in you has allowed you to do that. Or you may rest in the knowledge of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9 is clear that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Not only do you have the option to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, everywhere you go, the Spirit of God is there. Or you may rely on the Word of God. Not just in theory, but 
in the practice of eating and drinking the word heavily and intentionally and, and pointedly at, at, at sharpening the point of the spear and the scalpel to, to cut away your own sin, your own specific sin tendencies. Or you may rely on prayer and crying out to God concerning your sin habits, deciding I'm going to pray about this for 20 minutes a day for a month. You have the resource of singing God's word to bring joy to your own soul, which makes obedience natural. As Darren likes to point out, you'll remember the hymns we sing long after you forget the sermon. That's why the beauty of putting the word of God to music. Or you have the incredible resource of the gathering of God's people to worship that simply decide that you're not powerful enough to resist your sinful tendencies if you're inconsistent in meeting with God's people. For years and years, I've had believers come to me saying, I just can't seem to get on the right track. I'm just in disobedience here, 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 and here. You're not here very often. You're here twice a month, maybe. You don't go to a Bible study. You're, you're rarely faithful here and there. You don't serve. You're not part of the body. Why would you expect any different? Or you have this tool. You have the accountability of the brothers and sisters in the faith that if you'll let down your pride, let down your guard and be real and be genuine with some of the brothers, some of the sisters, you'll find their prayers. You'll find their probing questions. You'll find their encouragements just a tremendous tool in the toolbox of sanctification. And you'll learn that you don't try to live your Christian life alone. Listen, that's just a short list. But when Paul said in Ephesians 1.3 that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, he meant every spiritual blessing. What else can God do? Everything I've listed is, is a tremendous amount of power you have. What else could he do? There's really, really one more thing that he can do. He can relieve you of your mortal body. That's it. Your mortal body desires to sin. Your unglorified mind desires to sin. Romans 8.10 says, But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And no one denies the spiritual battles we fight. But never let it be said that one of the things in your Sanctification toolbox is a white flag. We don't, we don't act in helplessness in that fight. And so if we did, if Romans 7 means that there are just some things you can't help, biblical counseling would be really fast. Well, too bad you did what you didn't want to do, but you couldn't help it. Just one of those things, let's pray. So from a negative standpoint, hungering and thirsting for righteousness entails be rid of sinful habits. Be rid of anything that hinders worship of God. Be rid of sinful manifestations of selfishness. Be rid of the lie of helplessness against sin. But what about from a positive standpoint? What is hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What, what is it actually? Let me give you three. First of all, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a longing for holiness. This is just a generalized idea, the longing, of holy, a longing for holiness to be set apart, to live in a way that's entirely unaffected by the world. Or if I could put it this way, to ask the question of every single aspect of your life, why am I doing this? And then be able to answer it with Bible. 
If you stood back and looked at your own life, you might be amazed and you might be shocked at how much of your life is actually run by cultural expectations. Holiness said nothing is run by cultural expectations. It's all run by Scripture. A longing for holiness is a desire to exemplify the Beatitudes in everyday life. That if I'm poor in spirit, for example, I'm, I'm constantly filtering my day through the helpless spiritual state before God that I have. My lack of anything good to offer God. That if I'm mourning my own sin, I'm aware of and continually relying on the Lord. That if I'm lowly, knowing that the world will despise me for following Christ, then I can forget about trying to please men, trying to please anybody except Him. That's the, that's the joy of lowliness. The, if you go low enough, no one's opinion matters anymore because they all hate you, so it doesn't matter. It's a longing for holiness. It's a, it's a yearning. It's a second positive way we could put this, a longing to demonstrate spiritual fruit. A longing to demonstrate spiritual fruit. I've mentioned this already, but I want to go a little deeper into this. Paul gives his famous list of the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit of God, the outgrowth of the Spirit of God in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And so you ask yourself simple questions. Do I long to manifest love to this person? Or do I long to just sinfully avoid him? Do I long to manifest joy in the Lord? Or is it my habit to gripe and complain and worry aloud to anyone who will listen Do I long to manifest peace in Christ or will I spend my life wringing my hands about everything? Do I long to demonstrate patience or will everyone on the planet irritate me until I finally find relief in my own terminal illness? Thank you, Lord. I can finally have relief now. Do I long to show kindness and awareness of others or am I selective? Do I have a click? Do I have a select group that I insecurely run to because I'll be kind to them and shut everybody else out? Do I long to express goodness? Or is my Christian life lived in little boxes in which sometimes my faith impacts my actions and sometimes it doesn't and may the two never meet? Do I long to show faithfulness? Or is my life characterized by broken promises, conditional commitments, and flaky irresponsibility? Do I long to show gentleness that I will tirelessly extend grace to others and believe the best about others and see them as God sees them? Do I long to manifest self-control or do my feelings and do my wants dictate my actions? It's the third way we could describe hungering and thirsting for righteousness from a positive aspect a longing to pursue humility. A longing to pursue humility. It really encapsulates everything else. That every day you have floating on the screen of your mind a, a yearning to pursue being low, to pursue being less, to pursue being the least. Do you receive correction easily? Do you receive it gratefully? Do you receive it thankfully? Do you listen to sermons looking for correction, looking for admonition, looking for the surgeon's scalpel? Or do you listen for a good feeling and a pump-me-up for the day? Do you place the needs of others before your own? You know, there's a, an old and very stale joke in Christendom 
that you better not pray for humility because God will answer that prayer. That's the stupidest joke ever told in the history of the world. You ought to pray for humility. Why? Because you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And what will, that, what will make that happen is you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. Pray for humility. It's not complex. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a longing for holiness, a longing to demonstrate spiritual fruit, a longing to pursue humility. Now, 27 minutes ago, I told you that we would come to joy comes from honest evaluation. What are we talking about? Well, we would never preach sinless perfectionism that denies the doctrine of progressive sanctification that we've been talking about. But if, as I've described, both the negative and the positive aspects of hungry and thirsting for righteousness, if with no internal fight, no internal resistance, no internal shaking the fist at God or at the preacher, that you know in your heart that you yearn, you long, you desire to be rid of sinful habits, to be rid of anything that hinders worship, to be rid of sinful manifestations of selfishness, to be rid of the lie of helplessness against sin, that you do have a longing for holiness, you do have a longing to demonstrate spiritual fruit, you have a longing to pursue humility. If that is true, and looking in the mirror of your heart, you can say, yes, I want those things. Then joy comes. Because that heart attitude confirms your salvation to you. That you may enjoy, emphasis on joy, assurance of salvation. Peter told his readers in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 that if they're staying faithful under trials, he says, in this you greatly rejoice because you're seeing what he calls the proof of your faith. It's proof In the same way, your hunger and thirst for righteousness is a proof of faith, and that is truly the ultimate joy. If you're uncertain if you're a Christian, if you have even a 5% doubt, you can't have joy. Because there's always that nagging doubt that you might, just might stand before God, and you will be the one to whom Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. And that's a horrifying thought, we can't even fathom that. But if you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, you have joy of assurance of salvation. Because you've honestly looked at your life and said, yes, I'm not rid of sinful habits, but I want to be. I have had hindered worship with God, and I don't want that. I want to be pure before Him, and so forth. So four ways joy comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The rest will be faster. The first one, joy comes in honest evaluation. The second way, Joy comes in humble dependence. Joy comes in humble dependence. We go back to our text here. The verb, they shall shall be satisfied. This is one long word in Greek. And it's in the passive voice. Shall be satisfied means shall be filled. What it means is, in this passive voice, it's not something that the one who hunger and thirsts for righteousness can do on his own. In fact, this is a verb that some call a divine passive, that in this particular case, this is only something God can do. That God and God alone can empower the follower of Christ, not only to hunger for this righteousness, but to demonstrate it. And listen, this is a major, major point to understand the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. 
Jesus makes impossible demands. He makes radical demands of all who follow him. Uh, look, for example, at the very end of Matthew 5. Matthew five forty-eight. <clears throat> How's this sound for a demand? Matthew five forty-eight. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, no, I can't do that. Go backwards in the chapter to Matthew 5, 19. Matthew 5, 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The requirement is that you pay attention to the very smallest, the most minute, the tiniest command of Christ, to the smallest nuance. But you remember when we introduced the Sermon on the Mount that this is new covenant law. And through the new covenant, the follower of God is indwelt and empowered through the Holy Spirit. So how is it that you can possibly pay attention to the smallest nuance? How is it that you can possibly aim to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? It has to be only in total dependence. Total, complete dependence. I think an easy way to think about this is a newborn baby. A newborn baby is born with intense hunger and thirst, much like a new believer. But that baby has no ability whatsoever to satisfy those yearnings by, her, by herself or by himself. The, the life described in the Sermon on the Mount is one of total dependence on the transforming work of God. There is no other way. It's the result of the grace of God. It's re, the result of the, the kindness of God given to the believer. And so really, you have two choices. Choice number one, you can be in the habit of trying to coast on a great sermon you heard a year ago. You could try to coast on a helpful Bible study you went through 20 years ago. A good Bible reading session you had a month ago. You can try to coast on that. Or, you can live a life of dependence. That your feet don't hit the floor in the morning before you beseech the Lord for help and for His grace, and for His work to allow you to demonstrate hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because it's His work, not yours. Joy comes in honest evaluation. Joy comes in humble dependence. Here's a third way hungry and thirsting for righteousness brings joy. Joy comes in hungry satisfaction. Joy comes in hungry satisfaction. Hungry satisfaction. What kind of nonsense is that? The rain has gone to the brain. It's not nonsense. It's a spiritual paradox, but it's not nonsense. The verbs hunger and thirst are present participles in Greek. and In English, it's an ing verb. It indicates something is continuing. He is running. That's a, a participle where the action is continuing. In this case, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A continuous action. For the genuine believer in Christ, there's a continual yearning that, that doesn't stop until the follower of Christ is filled up with the righteous character and the actions which God desires you to demonstrate. You are, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, you are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, meaning from one degree of glory to another, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That your hungering and thirsting for righteousness is affecting this God-empowered transformation which satisfies you, it, it fills you, 
And yet the hungering and thirsting continues. I read earlier the psalmist writing in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. We get that. Except the psalmist also writes in Psalm 63, 5, My soul is satisfied. Here's the paradox. The faithful Christian is hungering and thirsting for righteousness and filled and satisfied all at the same time. Or maybe you could think of it this way. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness fills you up and then being filled up creates hunger and thirst. This is the tension. This is the paradox. The hunger gives satisfaction which gives spiritual hunger. And we illustrate this here at Grace every single week. By the time you leave on a Sunday evening, your brain is exploding with the knowledge of God. And yet you show up the next week. Why? Because being satisfied created more hunger. I, this is so important, it's worth actually seeing visually. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I, I want to show you this where you can see it in your Bibles. In Philippians 3, in the opening 11 verses, Paul makes a clear statement that if anyone, if anyone on planet Earth were to be evaluated by God on the merit of good works, Paul would outdo everyone. That he is the most qualified human being ever to be evaluated on good works. But he goes on to say that all that he would have thought could be counted in his favor, Paul counts it as loss, as worthlessness. Because only by being completely discounting your so-called good works as an unbeliever can you gain Christ, as he says in verse 8. And then in verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about striving to know the resurrection power of Christ, to know the total fellowship of suffering with Christ, to strain forward all the way to the resurrection from the dead. But then, Paul makes an inspiring statement, an honest evaluation. Verse 12, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, is he gives this picture of pressing on. He has not attained total spiritual perfection. In verse 12, he has not already become perfect. Verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect. What? As many as are perfect, think this way. What is this? Some English translations try to relieve the tension by translating verse 15, mature. As many as are mature rather than perfect, and that's a reasonable and acceptable translation. But it's no coincidence that Paul has just used a form of the same root, root word in verse 12. I have not already been made perfect. And then in verse 15, let us who are perfect think this way. I agree with the Legacy Standard Bible's decision to leave the tension, leave the irony, leave the paradox, leave the difficulty. Run up against it. Look up at the wall that you can't see the top of. That those who are perfect are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that in this sense, they're complete, they're fulfilled, they're satisfied. 
But the satisfaction drives the believer to have Paul's attitude of reaching forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal. And right here, we've just encapsulated the joyful Christian life. It is hungry satisfaction. Hungry satisfaction. That as you genuinely pursue a hunger and thirst to be like Christ in all things, you're, you're satisfied, you're satiated, your craving, your longing, and your hunger and your thirst to be righteous then grows based on that. And I know we've characterized it as hungering and thirsting leads to satisfaction, which leads to hungering and thirsting. But the whole goal of the Christian life is to have that back and forth be almost indistinguishable, where it's hunger and thirst and satisfaction, and hunger and thirst and satisfaction just always together. One of my favorite things to hear from newer church members when I ask them, how are you faring here at Grace Bible Church? To hear them say, oh, we're hungry for the word. We're hungry. Turn back with me to Matthew 5. Joy comes in honest evaluation, humble dependence, hungry satisfaction. One more way that hungry and thirsting for righteousness brings joy. Joy comes in hopeful expectation. Joy comes in hopeful expectation. We have to take into account the bigger context of Matthew, the bigger context of the Sermon on the Mount, and even of the Beatitudes themselves. The largest context, the context of Matthew itself, remember that this is a gospel focused on the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has come to offer a kingdom on earth. Everything in Matthew is focused on kingdom. We have to take into account the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is the opening shot. It's the opening salvo of new covenant law. The new covenant law of Christ to be implemented in the church age and fully realized in the coming kingdom of Christ on this earth. And we have to take into context the Beatitudes themselves here in the the opening dozen verses or so of Matthew 5. They're very future kingdom oriented in terms of ultimate fulfillment. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? We've already said that in the context of Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is ultimately defined as the kingdom which belongs to heaven, but is coming to the earth. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted is a future tense verb. The, the, The mourning shall be in the future fully comforted. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Future tense verb, the lowly shall inherit the earth, or the land more specifically. And in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Future tense verb, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall in the future be fully, completely, utterly, 100% satisfied. What does that mean? This is a promise of the genuine, complete, total perfection and sanctification of the believer at the end of life. That you will demonstrate total holiness. You will demonstrate total spiritual fruit. You will demonstrate total humility. That will happen. And now we've moved from the doctrine of progressive sanctification to ultimate sanctification, haven't we? Of perfected sanctification. That when you shed this mortal body, when you're given a new body, 
You'll stand welcomed in the presence of God without fault, without blame. Not one single vestige of leftover sin. Not one little discussion that you have to have about that thing you did when you were 20 years old. Not one leftover. You'll be utterly Christ-like in soul, utterly Christ-like in body. You'll be transformed, glorified, pure, complete, totally righteous, actually righteous. Now, right now, what do you enjoy? You enjoy what we might call rent-a-righteousness. You enjoy the effects of the imputed, the credited righteousness of Christ. You've got your father's credit card, so to speak, and you can spend his money, but it's not yours yet. You're credited with being as righteous as the Lord himself, but in that day, it will be actualized you will be righteous. You'll be freed from every trace or indication of unrighteousness. You'll be complete, whole, finished, finalized, done, fulfilled, every synonym you can think of. Or to put it in condensed form, using the words of John in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are now we are children of God. And it has not been manifested as yet what we will be, We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So joy comes in honest evaluation, humble dependence, hungry satisfaction, hopeful expectation. The Beatitudes are nothing if not applicable. And I know we could close in prayer right now and I believe the Lord would use what we've said so far, but... I'd like to apply this text to four specific groups that we have here seated in this room right now. The first group, I'd like to speak to those who have walked with Christ for decades. If you've walked with the Lord for decades, if anyone ought to be exemplifying hungry and thirsting for righteousness, it ought to be you. You are the examples that the rest of us look to. If anyone ought to be easily correctable, spiritually tender, sensitive, ultra-humble, easily corrected, easily talked to, it ought to be you. And my encouragement is to beware of coasting on spiritual growth from years past. Boy, I went through this great Bible study in the 90s and it's really impacted me. Great. What did you read this morning? What is your, what is your yearning for, for, for righteousness today? How are you going to be more humble at 75 than you were at 74? Ask yourself one simple question. Sure, I'm hungrier and I'm hungry and thirsty, but how can I be hungrier and thirstier? How can I yearn all the more? You're an example to which all others look, so be worthy of that post. It's an important one. It's the second group I'd like to speak to, to those who have walked with Christ for a a portion of your life, 5, 10, maybe 15 years at the outside, a portion of your life. Don't fall into the trap of beginning to rest on spiritual laurels. Don't start to coast. Don't fall into the trap of losing that initial self-examination which characterized your early years in Christ. Boy, when you first come to faith in Christ, you have this immediate comparison. Yesterday I was a, a sinner and today I'm a saint. And you have that and that's useful, that's helpful. Don't accept sinful habits as 
That's just the way you are. Whatever it is in your life that tends to stop you from hungering and thirsting and righteous, for righteousness, put those things aside. It's, it's time to be the type of Christian that your children and your grandchildren would want to write a book about, would want to honor. No one writes books about Christians who spend their lives in compromise and in habitual sinful spiritual failure. Be the Christian that a generation or two will talk about long after you've gone home. That your grandchildren will, will remember grandma or grandpa and how they walked with the Lord. It's the third group I'd like to speak to. Those, those who are new in Christ within the past couple of years or months even. What an opportunity you have. You have an opportunity to build your spiritual habits in your life in a way that you don't have to spend years undoing all the ways your life didn't reflect hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You, you have the chance to be on a, a positive, perfect trajectory right now that, that you marvel at any believer who isn't in church every time the doors are open. That it's a mystery to you why anyone struggles with consistently reading their Bibles. That it's odd to you if you don't listen to four or five, six or seven sermons every week. That you scratch your head at any believer who doesn't give as generously as possible to the gospel work that respect and deference toward the leaders of the church is all you've ever known and you can't believe believers do anything else, that listening to the wisdom of your brothers and sisters around you is a lifestyle and it boggles your mind why anyone would ever respond to that in pride or in anger, that your concern for the gospel work in the world through missions and the impact of the local church and that not having this concern and expressing it with time, treasure, and talent, that's a mystery to you. Why would anybody live that way? That praying for those who mistreat you and who are, who are terrible people towards you, that you have a genuine heartfelt compassion and prayerful love, that that's normal. And you have a hard time understanding why anyone would become embittered or angry. And, and you might even say, but weren't you just like them before salvation? And by being embittered, aren't you being just like them now, only silently? Listen. The relatively recent memory of your lost state can serve you very well. Stay hungry. Stay thirsty. I have one last group I'd like to address from this text. And that is to you who have fooled yourselves into believing that you're in Christ. You fooled yourselves. You, you may mistakenly think you have plenty of time to seek Christ. You don't know that. You have no idea if you think you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness because of coming to church, because of even having an interest in the things of the Lord, or maybe even like hanging around people in the church, if you are, for example, Roman Catholic, and that as long as you go to confession and receive the Eucharist and show up to Mass, that somehow you're, you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Or on the other side, if you think as a religious unsaved Protestant, because you've spent your life in church and surely God is pleased with that. Or if you think that if you're own, in your own assessment, you've done slightly more good than bad and certainly that's impressive to God. You have a rude and an eternal awakening coming. You cannot seek righteousness. You can't. It's impossible. Every so-called thing Good thing that you do is disgusting to the Lord. It's offensive to the Lord. It, it builds the wrath of God towards you because you believe you're gaining His favor and that's offensive to Him. 
whatever spiritual yearnings you may be experiencing, unless it is the desperate desire to repent of your sin and to come crawling to the cross to admit to God you're a rebel in need of forgiveness, every other so-called spiritual desire is a forgery, it's a fake, it's false, it's a fraud. You're carrying around a grenade with the pin pulled. You're carrying around an open container with black plague in it and smelling it and trying to taste it. You're walking across a wire suspended across the Grand Canyon and thinking you're enjoying the view. You're hanging off a cliff on one little unraveling piece of string holding you up. If I could put it this way, the only reason you're not instantly standing before God to give account for the forgery that is your life is because God is graciously keeping you breathing, which, by the way, He can stop any time He wants. I say this in desperation. I say this in the spirit of the pleading because any illusion you have that trying to hunger and thirst for righteousness outside of repenting and coming to Christ by faith alone is nothing more than false hope. You can do nothing good. Nothing good. You do nothing good in the eyes of God because every so-called righteous deed which you think will please Him does nothing but increase His wrath and fury towards you because you're trying to impress God outside of the knowledge that you're a sinner and in need of His saving grace. And so for you, may the words... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. May those words terrify you. May they frighten you. May they alarm you. May they disturb you. The words you need are the words of the tax collector in Luke 18 who was humiliated by his own sinfulness. The tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Those are the words you need. Then and only then are you in a position to live a life of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and then you will be satisfied. Our Father, we come to you bowled over by a text that is rich in meaning, powerful in depth, fearsome to the unbeliever, encouraging to the believer. And we would ask you to keep the promise of Isaiah that your word shall not return empty, it shall not return void, but it shall accomplish that which it was sent out to do. This very day, Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that they would be terrified of the fact that there's no good work that they can do that would please you, that they're hopeless, that they're lost, that that any hunger or thirsting for something spiritual that they're yearning for, that it's false, it's a fraud, it's fake, it's a forgery. Give them instead, Lord, the yearning of that sinful tax collector to cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, we fear the most for those who have been in our midst for many years, perhaps have even joined the church and yet are not regenerate. We ask you that this would be the day when trembling, perhaps alone, they bend the knee and say, I have been a fake. I have been a forgery. And that they would truly be regenerate. 
And Lord, for all here who do know you, life is too short to run after an adulterous affair. Life is too short to play with sin. Life is too short to not pursue righteousness. And so I pray that this little body of believers that meets on White Lane, that we would be characterized as those who hunger and thirst, yearn and long for and desire righteousness. To live in a way that is pleasing to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and ask it. Amen.